read the entirety of Revelation chapter 1. We read, as Jesus says to John, write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, and the things which are, and that is the content of chapters 2 and 3, as Jesus will address seven churches that are in the Roman province of Asia. And then from chapter 4, verse 1 on, it is the things which will take place after this. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, John the Apostle himself had lived there in Ephesus. That is where he was living and ministering for many, many years. When he was then exiled to the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, because he would not be quiet. He kept telling the truth about Jesus. You want to see what kind of an environment Ephesus was, you can read Acts chapter 19. In Ephesus, Ephesus was renowned for one particular feature, the temple of Diana, a pagan fertility goddess, and all the raunchy, wicked sin that attended that worship. And if you read Acts 19, you see Paul has come to the city of Ephesus. This is before John the Apostle. And he has found there a band of disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, who have not so much as heard of Jesus of Nazareth. They had gone to Israel and heard the message of John the Baptist, and they had listened and believed that there was coming the kingdom, and they repented, and they were baptized by John the Baptist himself. And Paul came upon these men, and he explained to them, well, the one to whom John was pointing is Jesus of Nazareth, and he explained. <clears throat> and then they believed that, they were embraced by that, and embraced it back, and then were baptized in the name of the Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And then, John, then Paul went into the synagogue. And for many, many weeks, he told the Jewish people there and the Gentiles who had come to listen as well about Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and what he had accomplished. And the, he is the resurrected Lord and soon coming King. And after several weeks of this, the Jewish, the synagogue leadership rose up and started arguing against what the apostle was saying. And so Paul then departed from the synagogue. And right next door, apparently, was this uh, pagan school, you know, where you could just rent part of the facility. And so they started meeting there with those who were welcoming the gospel. And they were having such an impact that they started affecting the, co the economy. The biggest economic boost or boon to Ephesus was the Temple of Diana. And here was a silversmith. He's seeing his trade go down because people have turned away from worshiping Diana and they're starting to turn to Jesus. And so the silversmiths who make money making replicas of the temple of Diana, they're seeing their trade go down. And so they started a riot. 
and they filled the athletic stadium with people who are there rioting and they don't even most of them don't even know what they're rioting about but you know these riots are kind of cool so let's join in and finally a jew stands up and tries to def because they're being attacked along with the christians and they get shouted down and finally the whole thing gets put down by the, a, a town leader who says you know we could be called into question by the roman authorities for this go home and so the people oh yes it's sobriety time and they went home but the gospel had created a great upheaval in ephesus and then this is probably three decades later that john is now in having been in ephesus for many years he's now on the island that is called patmos which is a Roman penal colony. Why? Because he was loyal to Jesus Christ for no other reason. But Jesus is now addressing, in chapters 2 and 3, he is addressing the seven churches that are on the regular mail route in the, city of the, in the province of Asia. And the first one is the city where John himself had been living and ministering for many, many years. To the angel, Jesus says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And yes, I do believe these are actual angels. Many commentators want to take them as being pastors because, you know, every local church has a pastor. Well, they didn't in the first century. There is no office of pastor in the first century. There's a gift of pastor, but there is no office of pastor in each local church. They have elders, deacons, and deaconesses. They don't have an office of pastor. And so when I read angel here, I take it as the angel means in the rest of the book of Revelation. It's an angel. Now, I don't know. I would dare say there is an angel for Friendship Bible Church. I've never met him personally. I don't know what his name is. But I don't have any problem getting my mind wrapped around that idea. And so to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstand. I am the one who has the authority. If I hold you in my hand, in the palm of my hand, then I am the master. And I walk in the midst of the seven golden lampstands each of these local churches is a lampstand. They are all to be a light of Jesus Christ in their area. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Whew. Wow. What a testimony from your Lord. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will, I will remove your role over this issue. 
I will put out that lamp. I will remove it. Unless you repent. But this you have. Oh, here's another compliment. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You will have access to the very inner core of my Father's kingdom, my kingdom as well. Remember your love. What was it like for you when you first heard, understood, and allowed yourself to be embraced by the mercy and grace of God? Love. Love. When you offered yourself, you, you allowed yourself to be embraced by the mercy and grace of God. And then in response, you freely offered yourself back as God's own servant. And you did it out of deep love because of what he had done for you that Jesus Christ went to a cross and endured all that he did to make it possible for you to have an unrestrained welcome in the presence of God. When I was 18, this is 50 years ago, okay? I hope that doesn't frighten you too much. When I was 18 years old, I had been, I had come to faith in Christ, possibly when I was in the first grade, but certainly when I was in the 11th, when I got exposed again to the gospel. But I was 18, and one evening I was just kneeling at the side of my bed. I had no agenda. I had no expectation. I wasn't asking God for anything. But I just said, Lord, I'm giving everything that I am to you. And again, I had no expectation. And I have never heard anybody ever say they had the experience that I had next. And again, I wasn't seeking anything experience but suddenly a weight came into the room and I prostrated on the bed I'm kneeling on the floor and and after just a few seconds I said Lord I can't breathe and the weight was lifted well that's weird that's strange I found out later the Hebrew word kavod, which we translate glory, the basic meaning is heavy. When the Temple of Solomon was being dedicated and it was filled with priests and they're offering enormous numbers of offerings, suddenly the glory of God, the weight of God, the kavod of God came into the temple and the priests were held motionless. The weight of his presence was so great they could not move. I don't know how long that lasted, but he was making it known to them, I am present. But why did God come to me that way? 
I was just offering myself. Who am I? I was a sinner who had been forgiven. I was a sinner whose sin record had been wiped clean and who had been granted the very, as a gift the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That same Jesus who could say to his enemies, which of you accuses me of sin? Who could say he who has seen me has seen the Father? That track record of his righteousness was actually attached to my account. Therefore, this forgiven sinner has the right, as every other forgiven sinner, to walk right into the presence of the holy God. That's the gospel. That's good news. And how do I step into that? Just by saying, I want it. Thank you. I believe that message is true, Father. Would you give it to me? And his answer 100% of the time is yes, eagerly. And rising from that is a desire to serve Jesus. That is the first love that Jesus is speaking of here. But notice how Jesus begins. I know your works, your labor, your patience, your endurance. They have done really, really well. They have been in a hostile environment and it hasn't stopped them. They have continued to, to tell the truth about Jesus. They've done what the word of God commands them to do, expects of them. They've done it. But over the years as they have done those works that every disciple ought to do, they've begun to do it by rote. They've begun to do it by necessity. They've begun to do it out of just their expectation placed upon. They have ceased to do it out of eagerness because of their love for Jesus. Jesus fully acknowledges their works, their labor, and their patience, their endurance. They have kept doing it year after year, decades. Paul was there in the late 50s. John is writing this book probably about 92 or 93 A.D. About 35 years or so after the gospel came to them. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. When people have come into your assembly who are, and by the way, the New Testament church had a lot of itinerant Bible teachers. They had men who went from one congregation to another to another. That's wonderful. We have seminars. We have speakers come in. That's wonderful. But you need to vet them. And the Ephesian church did due diligence in vetting these itinerant Bible teachers, and some of them didn't pass the test. You have tested those who say they are apostles. You cannot bear those who are evil. And if you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, the same apostle John in his letter for we call 1 John says to the Ephesian congregation, 
probably writing that letter before the book of Revelation, test the spirits. Test the spirits. Because every teaching that is comes out of a human being's mouth, its origin is either God the Holy Spirit, what's on the pages of this book, or another spirit, a fallen angel, who's twisted it. And you need to test them. Compare what this fellow is saying with what God has written. And if they don't pass that test, you bar the door. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and have persevered. You've pushed through and have patience. You've endured. You kept putting one foot in front of the other and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That is a powerful testimony. Powerful accolades from the Lord Jesus Christ. But you failed and won the most critical of all things. And it's an easy failure because it's endemic to us being fallen creatures. We start doing what we formerly loved to do by rote instead of out of love. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so you're performing your task. You have pulled yourself away from me. You've pulled yourself away from me. Imagine, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ seated in this chair. The building is vacant, and then one of us comes in, maybe in, his, in come in, just like I do on Saturdays, come in, unlock the door, come in, and you're here to straighten the church out. Make sure all the chairs are where they belong and you're going to vacuum and you're going to make sure everything is ready here for Sunday morning and you come in and you, you look up here and here's Jesus seated in this chair. And he has positioned this chair here, obviously in a way, so that he remains seated and you can come and sit in the chair and talk with him and visit with him. Have a relationship with him. And you come in the auditorium and you see Jesus and you say, well, hello, Jesus. This is wonderful. This is great. I've got to clean the church. Excuse me. He's got a chair here, obviously sitting here positioned for you to come and take a seat and have fellowship with him. Oh, let me, let me, Jesus, we'll, we'll do that later. Well, let me get the rows straightened out here. I need to go to the next building, get the vacuum cleaner and do it. 
and then you've straightened the rows and you've vacuumed the church and you've gone back to the sink because make sure there's no dirty dishes sitting in it and you just keep going. Instead of doing what he obviously purposes you to do, you keep doing the things that are legitimate things. They're things he's, you, that are serving him, but not serving him in the way he's encouraged you to do Jesus' greatest desire from us is us. It's us. Bob, Donna, Ed, Julie, Jesse. Sit with me. Have your Bible open. Let me speak to you. Let me speak to you. Let's have fellowship together. Let's have fellowship together. Very, very powerful statement that was made at the missions conference by one of the ministries that we've supported, Liaison International. He said, and this is a man who's ministering amongst Muslims. He's having Bible studies with Muslim imams. Bible studies with Muslims imams. He will ask a Muslim imam, because it says this in the Quran, do you know the seven illuminations of Jesus the Christ? Doesn't it say in the Quran, if you're, excuse me, the eight illuminations of Jesus the Christ, it says in the Quran, if you're not doing these things, you will go to hell. Yes, I'm fully aware of that. Do you know, do you, are you doing them? I don't even know what they are. Because they're in the Injil, the Gospels, and I've never read them. And by the way, they are encouraged to read the Injil, the Gospels, by Muhammad. And so he says, well, here, I happen to have an Injil right here. They've never even seen one. And he handed this imam an Injil that was in Arabic and Swahili. And the man was, where did you get this? Well, that's not important, but here it is. And so the eight illuminations are the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. They'd never even heard them. And so they begin to study the Sermon on the Mount together. And what this man said was, I lead them to Christ. I don't mean that I explain the gospel and say, okay, now pray the prayer with me. I mean I lead them to Christ, and Christ speaks to them out of his word. And they discover themselves to be in as they read and believe it, they suddenly will discover themselves to be in the kingdom. That is the kind of relationship Jesus purposes. To, as he speaks to them, he speaks to us. When we open God's word, we should expect God himself to be speaking because he is. Jesus' greatest desire is to have deep relationship with us.
in the teaching of the Book of Revelation, both in the Christian Men's Job Corps and the Bible School, and then with Man Church on last night, mentioned the point, and Darren and Michael had already discussed this, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That's literally how it should be translated. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled, tented among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. We are told in the book of Revelation that he will tabernacle with us. But you know he tabernacles with us now if we allow it. He displays himself. He discloses himself to us now if we will allow it. But we only pursue that when we are walking in our first love. In that love we had when we discovered ourselves to be cleansed. When we discovered ourselves to have an unrestrained welcome with the Holy God. When we discovered that Jesus actually would walk with us. But have we pulled away from that, allowed ourselves to be pulled away to do the tasks that should be the overflow, not the core? The core of Christianity is relationship with the Holy God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word there means face-to-face. And so it is, that's between the Father and the Son, but that is how it is to be between us and the Father as well. Us and Jesus as well. Us and the Holy Spirit as well, face to face. I speak to myself as much as anyone else in this room. Am I still walking in that first love? Have I allowed this book to gather dust while I'm all over the internet? I have. I have. And what does Jesus say to me? You've left your first love. I have this against you. I, Jesus, want face-to-face relationship. And you're about the business of doing tasks instead. Legitimate things. I know your works, your labor, your endurance. You're doing all these right things, but the one most necessary thing you've left behind, and it is the deal-breaker. It is the deal breaker. Do not deny yourself the greatest of all blessings. Satan will deftly, quietly walk us into that place where we're doing what looks like wonderful good things, but without the most necessary thing, which is love and enjoyment of the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ.
this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Think back to, hearken back to those days. They are only gone because you walked away. You can turn around and go back. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, which means change of direction, based on a change of outlook, a change of desire. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly. It is so vital, it is so important. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Not to soften the blow, but to tell them that, yes, I do see it all. He adds another accolade. But this you have. Yes, I listed all those other things. Yes, and there's this one additional thing. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, if you read the commentaries, there's a dispute over what that means. And I think this is a totally made-up story. There was an ancient uh, commentator by the name of Tertullian who said, well, the Nicolaitans, that was a cult that was created by that fellow Nicholas, who's described in the book of Acts. He was one of the early disciples. He was one of the, uh, and he started this cult. And that's why it's called the Nicolaitans. But what does the word Nicholas mean? It means nikos, to dominate or have victory over, the laity. We get the English word laity, the laos, the common people. What I am suggesting to you is what Jesus is talking about here is the earliest version of what we would call the clergy. What's the point of clergy? Where did this idea of ordination come from? By the way, I'm not saying if somebody's been ordained, that's a sin. Please don't. But where did the whole idea of, oh, these fellows, we will ordain them and we will give them special aura about them that is distinguishes them from the, the you know those common ordinary Christians. Let me ask you a question. Can you made be, be made ho holier before God than Jesus makes you by his mercy? No. Holy is holy is holy. I'm holy. I'm a saint. The word saint is just another way of saying I'm a holy one. I can't be made more holy than Jesus makes me. And yet this whole clergy laity thing is about what? How do most people conceive it? Oh, well, this fellow is somehow by some ritual made closer to God than the standard layman or laywoman. Blasphemy. You can't be made more holy than Jesus makes you on the first instant you entrust yourself to him. And what is Jesus saying? This you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You hate this concept that somehow there is this class of people who can be made more holy and who are distinct from the laity, the common run-of-the-mill Christian. You hate it, and so do I. 
He's going to mention it again, by the way, when he speaks to the church at Pergamos. Because they have some people in their church that have embraced the Nicolaitan heresy. I welcome you. Jesus is saying to us, come back. Come back. That first love is still within your reach. I didn't move. We may have all heard this, you know, this couple is driving down the road, this old married couple, and is one of the old bench seats, you know, not bucket seats, one of the old bench seats, and they're driving down the road, and the lady's hugging this door over here, and of course the man's in the driver's seat, and the lady begins to lament and say, you know, when we first got married, when we were dating, we first got married, I, I used to be right beside you, and had your arm and all, uh, 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 and he looks over and he says, I didn't move. Jesus didn't move. We did. We did. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I am asking for myself as well as everyone else in this room that you will help us to get our minds and wills and spirits together with you and to start making choices <coughs> during the course of each day that bring us into your presence instead of diverting ourselves away from it to other, even legitimate, tasks, but that are less worthy than abiding in your presence. Help us to not forget what the Holy Spirit said to us today. We ask this of you, kind, loyal, merciful King Jesus. And all God's people said, <laughs>